and welcome to this week's A Photographic Life. I think one of the problems I have most often with photography, and I've got to be honest, with photographers, is how self-reverential it can become and they can become. Photography talking about photography, photographers talking about photographers. I've seen a few books uh, recently being published, uh, which are collections of people who write about photography, writing about photography, put together by people who write about photography. Surely in this case, photography eats itself. It becomes so inward-looking that it forgets about the outside world in which it exists. I often look at books to read about photography or photographers to find something out, something new, a detail perhaps, an insight, an insider uh, kind of um, element that makes me think, yeah, I can connect with that person or I can make a connection between this and that. For me, there is always a problem with interpretation. One person's interpretation of a situation, of a piece of work, of a photographer, is actually nothing more than subjective uh, opinion. It's not really interpretation, because so often when that's coming from an academic perspective, that interpretation is reliant on what other people think and other previous writing. So it becomes this continual kind of relay of opinion bolstered, not by experience or true insight, but by the reading of others. And for me, that's a bit of a problem. Well, as I mentioned a short while ago, I think a few episodes ago now, I've been working since the early spring on a book that I'm writing about the history of Vogue House. Now, if you're not aware of Vogue House, it's a building, number one, Grosvenor Square in the West End of London which was taken over by Condé Nast, the publisher of all of the uh, magazines such as Vogue and GQ and World of Interiors and Tatler, House and Garden, uh, Brides, and then latterly Wired and Glamour, so forth. A, a lot of those high-end luxury magazines. Well, they came from Vogue House. That was the headquarters in London for those magazines. And they took over that building. They rented it, actually, funnily enough, from the Church of England in 1958. And those magazines have been produced in that building over the last six decades. So I'm writing a book about the history of all of those magazines. They had their own photographic studios in the building, uh, the Vogue studios, um, up on the sixth floor. Some incredible photographers and some amazing iconic photographs that you are aware of were created in that building. So for me, that's really interesting because I'm talking to the actual people who uh, worked there, as I did from 1991 to 1999, but people who've worked there, photographers who worked for the magazines and so forth. So I'm getting first-hand knowledge, presenting that as insight. Well, as part of that process, and don't judge me on this, I've had to read, and I always do this, same thing with the Bill J book, I read everything I possibly can that may have an association with the story I'm trying to tell. And one of the things I've been reading are models, autobiographies and biographies. 
uh, in particular, the uh, autobiography of Joanna Lumley, uh, Mary Helvin, who, of course, was married for a while to David Bailey, and also Twiggy. Now, these books may not seem to be the obvious place to go to find out about photography, but I found out more about photographers and photography from reading these books recently than I have from any of the so-called academic strong works that I should be reading. The Mary Helvin book, for example, is, I think, the best book on David Bailey, if you're interested in Bailey, that I've read. And I've known Bailey and worked with Bailey, so I can absolutely confirm that she gets it right. Well, she would, of course, but I've read a lot of other people writing about Bailey who get it wrong. So anyway, I was reading the um, the Twiggy book, as I was saying, and I came across a really interesting piece of information that ties up with lots of other things. So I'm just going to read it to you. It says here, it says this. Uh, in hindsight, I realised there is no way Vogue would have hired Justin de Villeneuve, who was also Twiggy's kind of boyfriend manager at the time, and we're talking about the late 1960s here, to do a set of photographs otherwise. Vogue had their own A-list of photographers. But when Vogue wanted to book me and I said, yes, as long as you get Justin to do the pictures, it was a fait accompli. He had been very clever in getting Barry Latican's old assistant, Chris Killop, to be his assistant and light for him. By that time, we knew that everything is in the lighting, and Chris was the best, and Justin could afford the best. We had only got back from Japan at the end of 1967, yet by February 1968, Justin had his first spread in Queen, the Valentine issue. Anyway, so that's a a little insight there. But of course, the word, the name that jumped out to me was Chris Killop. Now, you may be aware of Batty, uh, Barry Latigan, I should say, his uh, work of the 1970s. It's very much of, a, of a, an aesthetic of the time. And, of course, Barry, in later years, um, there were definite problems. But I wasn't aware that Chris Killop was this master of lighting within Vogue House, creating photographs for Vogue of Twiggy in that period. And I've tried to read up on this, and there isn't anything out there about this. Now, what it shows me, which I think is really interesting, is that there is a perception of Chris's work, an amazing, powerful, emotive body of work, which I'm sure many of us went to see at the Photographic Gallery in London, or alternatively, have the book of of that exhibition. And we can enjoy that work. But what I'm really talking about here is the journey and the backstory. The fact that Chris did that work and he can be so highly regarded for it does not in any way uh, show that he came from that commissioned working photographer, fashion, portrait background. I've been in photography for so long now, 40-odd years, I know a lot of the backstories. And I can also spot when people are uh, reinventing, I should say, uh, their histories. So my suggestion is, if you want to learn about photography, don't turn to the people who write about photography. Turn to the people who are actually involved in it. 
This week, we welcome to the podcast to explain to us what photography means to him in under five minutes. And it's Tom Bowden this week, who is an American photographer recognized internationally for his street portrait work. Influenced early in life by the work of Diane Arbus, Mary Ellen Mark and Philip Lorca de Corsia, his street portraits are often accompanied by the stories of the people he meets and works with on the streets. When he was 15, he saw the Diane Arbus image, child with toy hand grenade, I think we probably all know that one, in a high school library book. After that, he was obsessed. Bowden's work as a photographer and producer have taken him around the world, and his work has been collected in two books, Love Street and Encounters, Portraits of Americans. His work has been published in The Guardian, Photo Magazine, L'Oléo de Photography, amongst many other publications. This is Tom Bowden, Tebow Photo, and I want to thank Dr. Scott for inviting me to record a brief message about why I love photography. The meaning of life, um, as I ponder it, is that there is no real meaning of life. You have to come up with your own meaning. A philosopher said that the purpose of life is to find your purpose. And I found mine in photography, street photography, street portrait work. I think there's nothing more important than documenting human life. It's my therapy. And uh, interesting, fast people fascinate me. When I was in high school years ago, about 1968, I walked into the school library, opened a Diane Arbus photo book. I was captured right then and there. I, I heard music. I heard uh, holding music. I said, I have to do that. So um, many years later, uh, I'm convinced I'm on the right path and I found my purpose. Uh, I, I love photography because I document human life. It's my own therapy. Fascinating people, uh, interesting people fascinate me. And, and making art is a critical use of my time. Uh, Mary Ellen Mark, Diane Arbus. Uh, I have some great uh, visual mentors to keep me on track. Um, and I actually had a bag full of little notes by my bedside that described to me why I love photography and why I'm doing it. Just at random times, I would write on, the, on a little piece of paper. Here's some of those thoughts on why I love photography from my baggie of thoughts. My work is difficult with an element of danger and fun. That's street photography. It causes me to stop being too careful. The next little note, learn to move quickly and be invisible. Existential answers are provided. Cameras are passports for seeking information and nosiness. Shine a light on the disenfranchised. I work with homeless people many times, and um, you can see that in my work. I listen to their stories, and you know what? It's give and take for me. Uh, if someone gives me their time and lets me make a portrait, I will give them a bus fare or a cup of coffee. Street photography is my religion. Uh, and, and it's good exercise. Uh, I like to help others when possible, provide a platform for dissent. I like to break the rules. 
there's some time travel involved and studying light and time and space is for me why I love photography. You need to be here now when you're shooting on the street and to look under the obvious and you practice your social skills. So those are the notes I've made because I've asked myself this question. But I will say in closing, wherever I go, whatever city I'm in, I head towards the streets because that's where the commotion is and that's where the people are and that's where the images wait like presence. There's nothing more important in my lifetime to do than this. Thank you for listening. Thank you for contributing, Tom. And as always, if you are not aware of his work, then check out his website. Full details are on the United Nations of Photography.com uh, website where this uh, podcast is posted, or alternatively, just look out for him through Google. I started off this episode talking about the realities of starting out as a commercial working commission photographer. I hate the word commercial, just used it so you're absolutely clear as to where I am. Well, anyway, I recently saw on Instagram quite a long thread by a photographer in the States, um, which was posted on the A Photo Editor uh, account. And um, I wanted to read it to you because I thought that, and following up from where we were last week about the uh, well-being and mental well-being. I thought it was an interesting kind of take. I'm going to read it off my phone, so um, I'll do my best to be kind of coherent. But here we go. So... Uh, this was a female photographer. She said this. Uh, my clients were all sizes from non-profits to the largest sportswear brand in the world, but they were cheap. They just want cheap. The market is saturated and there are too many willing to work for free, especially for the best editorial and lifestyle fashion client. When I began, I was an editorial photographer, but the pay kept going down for the same jobs. So I went into advertising. They used to pay a lot, but not anymore. A typical day was nine to 12 hours. I was doing as much as I could on my own so as to keep as much money as possible. I admit I was not the best business manager. I had to keep up with the workload, which was overwhelming at times. It was a lifestyle. Many of you out there will understand this. Take-home pay after expenses depended on how good my year was going or not. Again, most of the time, across a quarter, I would break even. I had enough to live, to have a little growth, but not much. This was frustrating. Did I need a rep? Yes, I really did. But after initially trying to get reps when I was very young, and after being treated poorly by toxic agents, which our industry breeds, I decided to go it alone. I could not ever grow uh, past the balance of the incoming work with the demand for delivery. I would have dry spells and just take anything, almost to keep the money coming in. In addition, I had a model that I always did pro bono projects, uh, not for more, not more, I should say, than three per year, depending on size of the project, the cause and the non-profit. Otherwise, I would say the worst gigs are e-commerce. You're a machine, an average of 10 years per day, no image rights, handoff at the end of each day, no contribution on creative or styling. 
Take-home pay after expenses was maybe 30-40% because there is no post-production. You rarely need an assistant. You could hire your own producer for a witness to prevent the client from taking advantage of you. Happens a lot, especially to female photographers. But you need to cover your EQ, usage, rentals, transport, etc. I would get my day rate of $1,500 paid, though, you know, you do it and you wear a smile and try to enjoy the ride. After being a lifer, I quit and became an executive producer. And now I actually get paid for all of my work and no one ever, not ever tries to get me for less than what I ask for. And I get paid a lot of money. Initially, I became a brand art director to supplement my photography income, but after getting an opportunity to produce produce a large project, I decided to give it a try. Producers often make significantly more money than art directors nowadays. I also built a curriculum for conceptual fashion photography, and I began producing photography events, etc. Anything to support the passion. They helped me keep positive, meet people, and give back. So yeah, I became an executive producer simply because as a woman, I get paid what I'm worth in that area. About three years ago, I ended my commercial photography career and began to focus 100% on being an exec producer. I'm also working on a Master of Science degree in social science sustainability and social impact. I want to say it's okay to hit a ceiling and say, I think it's time to find a profession where I am valued. The creative industry is just as toxic as any other, and each person's experience is unique, but also it changes and morphs and ebbs and flows over a long time. Otherwise, if you're going to keep fighting the fight, you absolutely must hire a good producer. Well, she would say that, wouldn't she? But I thought that was a really interesting, honest, frank, raw, uh, I suppose, expose of the realities of working as a photographer today. As I was saying last week, you don't have to live up to other people's expectations all of the time. It's also a good thing, I believe, to explore different areas and different ways in which you can be engaged with photography, but not necessarily always be a photographer. If you can't make it working as a photographer, that isn't a failing. I always say to our students, if you get to a point at which you realise that photography isn't for you, that isn't a failing. That's a success because then you're going to be able to readdress your engagement with the medium in a way that works for you. Now, as I'm talking, I can hear that the birds have suddenly started flying around the outside of the shed. I wonder if you can hear them also. They seem to be going a little bit nuts in the tree outside the window. Maybe they're telling me it's time to finish this week's episode. I think they probably are. Anyway, as always, I hope you've enjoyed it. And I'd just like to say thanks very much to all of you uh, for your support and kind words concerning the recent death of UNP contributor Pete Silverton. Anyway, you know what to do, guys. Maybe the birds might drown me out, but I'm still going to ask you to take care. (laughs) 